Hello, and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Gospel Study. Today is uh, August 27th, 2023. Uh, we are not, uh, as, as, as everybody knows, we're not strict about tracking the Come Follow Me program, but um, in order to orient where we are today, we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians. Um, and, and Rosalind's title is 1 Corinthians, a more expansive Christian kingdom. I'm Chris Kimball, conducting the day on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation, uh, on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation board. Um, Rebecca Deschweinitz, Linda Hoffman Kimball, and Michael Austin, also board members, are participating today. Uh, Linda will be offering the closing prayer. We are using our webinar format on Zoom, and we're running a live stream on Facebook and recording this program. Uh, introducing Dialogue. I want to remind everybody that uh, that this is my uh, this is my fundraising comment. In the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, "My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue." To fulfill this vision, we have made the current journal, all 55 years of archived issues, and all of our new digital offerings, including this gospel study series our podcasts and other features entirely free for online users. Uh, this has meant moving away from the subscription model and building a sustaining dialogue fund to carry the journal. Um, I encourage contributions that will keep us moving and, uh, and publishing into the future. I would also like to encourage subscription. Uh, dialogue is a journal, a quarterly journal, and the subscriptions are a still a core part of our uh, of our production and uh, and and provision of that journal. Um, you can find out more in all respects at give to dialogue.com or dialoguejournal.com. Today I'd like to introduce um, Rosalind Eves and and the other music and participants and then we will begin. Um, Rosalind with us today, Rosalind Eves has a PhD in English from Penn State with an emphasis in rhetorical history. Her research interests include rhetorics of space, 19th century women's rhetorics, and Mormon women's rhetorics. She is currently an assistant professor at Southern Utah University, where she also directs the Writing Center. Outside of academia, she's the mother of three children, the wife of a chemistry professor, and an author of young adult novels, including a historical fantasy trilogy, Blood Rose Rebellion, set in Hungary, where she served a mission and the AML at Whitney Award-winning Beyond the Map Stars. Um, we also have with us Helen Boswell-Taylor, who will offer the opening prayer when we get to that point. Uh, Helen is a professor of biology at Southern Utah University, where she has taught students for 24 years. She is the mother of two sons and many animals, and the author of four novels, one nonfiction book, and several scientific papers. Helen, you're on. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just like, why is everyone waiting? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank thee that we could come together on this beautiful day. Thank thee for your love and guidance that strengthens us. Please bless our panelists and viewers and help us engage our minds and hearts as we learn about that wisdom and messages. We are very thankful that we could engage with our brothers and sisters in this community. We say these things in the name of thy Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Helen. 
Um, all right, I'm going to share my screen. Everybody cross your fingers that and I appear to have, hold on just a second. I appear to have um, closed the file that I was supposed to share. Give me just a second. All right. Okay, can everybody see that? All right, I am really excited to be with you guys here today. Um, this is one of the things I love best. I uh, was a gospel doctrine teacher for four years fairly recently, and I love being able to dig into the scriptures and to get a look at like how it fits into cultural context. Um, and because my background is in rhetoric, that's kind of the, the framework that I'm gonna be approaching this with because Paul, as an educated Jew living in a Roman empire, would have been very familiar with some of the rhetorical traditions that I teach to students. Um, I am not going to pretend to be an expert in this though. I was telling the panelists earlier, uh, when I started looking into this, I went into JSTOR um, and looked up First Corinthians and there were literally thousands of articles and probably hundreds of books um, just on Paul and on Corinthians. Um, so we're not going to try and cover everything that people know about this. Um, I focused this on some of the things that I found interesting or that resonated with me, and I'm hopeful that some of those you'll also find interesting or that they will resonate with you. Um, and I've titled this A More Expansive Christian Kingdom because the more I looked at it, um, it seems to me that one of the things Paul is doing in all of the letters, and Corinthians in particular, is trying to explain to people steeped in Roman culture how to be a Christian. In, in the ways that that might push against some of the cultural norms that they were familiar with. Um, just for a little bit of an overview, uh, we know that this was written around 53, 54 uh, in the Common Era. Um, I've kind of broken it down into what I think Paul is doing in these sections. That is the first four chapters serve as an introduction um, and a framing for the rest of, for the, rest of the letter. Um, in 5 through 11, he responds to specific concerns that a member named Chloe raised to him in a letter. Uh, he talks about spiritual gifts, He and then he ends with his testimony before wrapping up the letter. Um, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the introduction and the cultural context around that, because I think it's really important to understanding what else he's doing in these, in these letters. Um, I am going to have points where I ask questions. Um, Zoom is a little harder to be interactive than the way I like teaching in the classroom. Um, but please feel free to uh, contribute in the comments uh, if I'm not asking questions. Some parts I'm going to go through a little quicker so that we can spend more time um, on, on some of the really meaty parts. Uh, in, in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives what I think is kind of his, his aim in the letter. Um, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And I apologize if there are typos. Um, I caught them this morning when I went over it again, uh, but too late for I sent it. Uh, for it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are in the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So Paul's been given notice that there are contentions among the saints at Corinthians, and so part of the purpose of this letter is, is to address that. Um, but I think he also has a larger purpose, which is to 
introduced the saints to this more expansive idea of what it means to be a Christian, to belong to the Christian kingdom as opposed to the Roman Empire. Um, and he writes, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Um, and I want to stop here for, for just a second to talk about, um, again, some of the cultural context behind that. Um, if you were an educated Roman, um, you would be well-versed in both rhetorical traditions and philosophical conditions, a lot, um, traditions, a lot of which come out of right, Socrates and Plato um, and Aristotle. And sometimes there's this perception that rhetoric is just about the form, that philosophy is more concerned with truth and content, um, but actually there's quite a bit of overlap between those. But one of the things that was um, important in both the rhetorical and philosophical traditions is this idea of Sophia or wisdom, right? And we see that in the previous slide, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And we see this word wisdom coming up over and over in these chapters. Um, of course, philosophers, right, are, are the lovers of wisdom. And, and one of the philosophical traditions that's influencing Paul here in these in this letter is that of the Stoics, who kind of had this view that all humans are part of this divinely ordained community, that you achieve the good life or a flourishing life by practicing virtue. Um, and I do have to point out that the word virtue um, has the root of man. Um, we get the same root in vera. Um, and that's not an accident, right? That for the Romans, the truly virtuous person had to be a man. Um, and that and that becomes important a little bit later. Um, and attuning oneself to divine will. So already this Stoic philosophy is pushing back on um, cultural tendencies um, that valorized material things, right? Wealth and money and um, personal indulgences. And so you can see why this Stoic philosophy might be appealing to Christians. Um, but I think what Paul does is he takes this philosophy that his readers would have been familiar with, and he and he turns it into something bigger in the context of of Christianity. Um, in an article by uh, Richard Brookins, he talks about the wise men paradoxes that come out of Stoicism, that only the wise man is rich, regardless of how much money he has. Only the wise man is king, regardless of his position in society, right? Only the wise man is nobly born, is strong, is perfect, is eloquent, and is free. And, and I picked these paradoxes specifically because this is the same language that Paul is using in these first four chapters of Corinthians. Um, we get to the second chapter, and Paul is kind of introducing himself, and he he does this move that we often call a humility topos. That is, you set up yourself as this humble person um, in order to then um, reach your audience and move the audience. So. I find it kind of ironic given how clearly structured Paul's letters are and how truly eloquent parts of Corinthians are that he says this. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And I hope you can see some of these echoes here, right? He's he's not necessarily rejecting this idea that, that 
that there's a human kind of wisdom or Sophia, um, but he's rejecting it or he's he's putting it aside in favor of a much bigger understanding of wisdom. Um, and again, I think it's this the rhetorical move, right? He wants to emphasize that this is coming through the spirit and not from him. I am personally not convinced that Paul has no excellency of speech because I think parts of Corinthians especially are incredibly eloquent. Um, but it's this rhetorical move that he does to emphasize the role of God in his preaching. Um, and, and so he builds up this interesting contrast in these first four verses where on the one hand we have, right, we have, we have people like the Stoics. We have this incredible emphasis set on wisdom, but this worldly wisdom in Paul's worldview belongs to an infant, right? It's it's worldly, it's carnal. And what he's offering to the saints is this bigger perspective through Christ, something that's mature. Um, in the KJV, it gets translated as perfect, but I'm, I'm also relying kind of heavily on this. You can't see it. Um, Thomas Wayman's New Testament study study guide for um, Latter-day Saint families, where he does kind of a modernized translation, and he uses the word mature, which I really like because I think that takes some of the pressure off perfection. Um, but it's it's kind of fascinating to me how Paul takes this already kind of expansive view that the Stoics had about how people participate um, in their communities and turns it into something much bigger. Um, but again, Paul has to first emphasize like that it's not about him, that it's that it's about this bigger world. Um, and and so he comes back to the conflict that people are having. I'm not able to speak into you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Right. So there's that bigger possibility, but right now they're not, they don't have that maturity. For where there is jealousy and division among you, are you not of the flesh and conduct yourselves in a human way? For when someone says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely being human? What is Apollos really? What is Paul? Um, and he uses several metaphors to describe his relationship, but preeminent among them, right? They're servants um, who taught them. They are planters of the field that the people, that the saints become um, God's field and God's building. Um, in the KJV, it, it calls them a master builder, which makes me think of the Lego movie. So I like... Uh, Wayman's translation here of a wise architect. Um, but again, he's saying nobody, we just, we've just started the work. It's really up to God and Christ to build on this work. For no one can establish another foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Therefore, let no man glory in men. Um, and remember that list of those stoic paradoxes, all of those amazing things that belong to the wise man. Paul kind of alludes to that when he says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. Um, reminding people that they have this inheritance in Christianity um, that they can claim, but it, but it depends on becoming um, subject to God and to Christ. And I promised I will get into um, questions. <laughs> I'm just trying to, to set up. Um, so we come back right to this idea of Sophia, um, of wisdom. But for Paul, the wisdom of the world is nothing next to the wisdom of God. Um, I don't know, Chris or Michael, could I get one of you to read this? I feel like I'm doing a lot of reading. Sure. I had to get unmuted. Um, <clears throat> but we speak wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who will perish, 
but we speak the wisdom of God hidden in a mystery. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit who searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Okay. Um, and here's one place that I want to invite um, some commentary for, from people who are on the Zoom chat. What does this kind of wisdom look like? Um, given the context that, that Paul is preaching in, why is this idea of God's wisdom such a big deal? That's That's probably going to take a few minutes for folks mostly yeah. to respond, but um, Joe's written here. Uh, it's juxtaposed against the philosophical tradition of the Greeks. Yeah, and and I love this reminder. Um, I mean, the, the philosophers going back to Plato and even earlier, right? The the purpose of philosophy was the pursuit of truth, and you were able to get to truth through reason and through um, you know that Socratic dialogue. And what Paul is saying is, yes, you can get human wisdom that way, but the wisdom of God, this much more all-encompassing wisdom, you can only get through the Spirit. It's like there's another comment. Yeah, another comment. I think the wisdom is to be open to learning and not all-knowing. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I like that idea. <laughs> I think but that's not having really a kind of explain away um, everything um, beyond empirical evidence um, and there's a kind of measures and there's a kind of beautiful irony in that too right that the way to become the truly wise man in god is to let go of the pretense that you can know everything yeah and that that that's striking as i think about um kind of the repeated use of wisdom and foolishness and the foolishness yeah. <laughs> this idea that we yeah. can though we can know everything in, you know, the ways that we've set up. Um, yeah. Yeah, it looks it looks like we have, yeah, knowledge beyond empirical evidence. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I want to bring up the next slide. So we talked earlier about the Stoics, right? Those paradoxes that only the wise man is wise, rich, king. And I went through... Um, Paul, a lot of this comes up in, in four, but there, it shows up in pockets in other places. What do you notice about this? What is Paul doing with this idea of the stoic wise man? How is he translating that for a Christian con context? Um, you're, you're asking, we get to, we get to talk a little bit. Yes, please. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm watching the comments here. Um, Rachel says, it is Jesus 
mean, the, the, what I find interesting in this parallel and what, what Paul is doing is comparing the wise man who talks as if it's um, my wisdom, it's, it's first person, I know, I have figured this out, um, whereas the Paul is saying, um, is, is talking like a conduit. Um, we are weak, but, um, but we know we, wisdom has come to us and we are passing it on. Um, yeah. I, I mean, that of course becomes a matter of, of faith and understanding, uh, because it's still a man saying, <laughs> instead of, <laughs> I know saying I am told, but, um, but that's the, that's the, that's the transition that's happening, the, the switch that's happening here. Yeah, so we have a comment. Um, the wise man is those things in himself because of his wisdom, but the Christian is those things because of Christ, a power outside of him or herself, internal versus external empowerment. Uh, and, yeah. and it strikes me here that um, kind of the collective, you know, the, the shift from the Stoics is this individualistic kind of identity, whereas the Christian, it's we are... We are, we are, as opposed, you know, there's this collective kind of um, sense of a community identity, and we're not just yeah. kind of individuals, but, but, but who we are is because of our relationship to Christ, and that that's where our identity comes from, rather than as this, you know, singular individual. Yeah, and even when he's not using we, when he uses ye, that's the second person plural, right? He's, he's again, he's not yeah. talking about individuals, he's talking about this community. What struck me is just, I mean, not only the fact that he's using the same language from these Stoic paradoxes, but that he's making it much bigger, right? Like, yes, you can have these worldly things, but look what happens um, when, you, when you transform it. And I saw a comment... Um, is he setting the stage to address contention, raising the reader's view of themselves? Um, yes, absolutely. I think part of the reason he doesn't, like he spends four chapters before he even gets to the, the purpose of his letter. And I think that's why. I think he's reminding them, when you committed to Christianity, you committed to this much bigger idea of the world. Look at all these things you can have in Christianity, and you're rejecting that for these petty squabbles. I think absolutely, I think that's what he's doing. One thing I note is that Paul is a convert, mm -hmm. and he was the most orthodox of Jews. And this list under Christians is so Christian that <laughs> I, it's, it, it's a demonstration of how fully reformed he is yeah no i like that all right i'm gonna um move on i want to talk a little bit about well we're gonna move into the specific um concerns that he was addressing and some of them we'll spend a little more time on than others um i do want to take just a minute to talk about in so in chapter four at the end um right paul says i don't write these things to shame you but to exhort you as my beloved children Therefore, I encourage you to be imitators of me. Um, and this is one of the passages where I really just had to stop and think, 
I really think Paul is saying I'm not eloquent as a rhetorical device because look at this. Um, the, and this comes from Wayman's um, more modernized translation. Up until the present hour, we have been hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, mistreated, and homeless, but we do hard work, laboring with our own hands. When we are verbally abused, we respond with a blessing. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we comfort. Um, and I think this is striking, especially in light of the concerns that Paul is going to go on and address. Right? He's not saying, I'm asking you to do something that I haven't done myself. Um, and I love that reminder, too, that I'm not writing these to shame you, but to encourage you, to exhort you, which is also a very rhetorical term. Okay, so in chapter five, we get into the first set of concerns. Um, the specific concern was that a young man had married his stepmother. Paul says the saints should have removed him from among them. And I want to stop here for just a second because Paul's reaction to me was a little bit curious. Um, in, in verses 11 and 12 in chapter five, he says, now I'm writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister who is immoral, greedy, an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunk, or a thief. Do not even eat with such a person. For what do I have to do with judging those outside? Are you not the judge of those inside? Um, like, first of all, if we're looking at that list of things, uh, I mean, Paul somewhere else says, you have all been these kind of sinners at one point. Um but earlier in Romans, oh, and I do want to, I forgot to say this at the beginning. Most of you probably know this already, but the letters of Paul are not arranged in chronological order. They're arranged longest, shortest. Um, Corinthians is one of the earlier letters, uh, but people disagree how early. The most common one I saw was that it's like the fourth one. Anyway, but in Romans, he writes, therefore, let us not pass judgment upon one another, but rather let us decide to never place a stumbling block or trap in front of a brother or a sister. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in itself. What do we do with that? How do we resolve that? Like, sort of, it feels a little contradictory to me. What do we do with that? And I'm throwing this out to, to you guys in the audience and on the panel. Well, I, I while, while we're looking for comments, it's very intriguing in this whole uh, section that we've been talking about on what what the third person and second person plurals mean. Um, who is the we? Is the we the apostles speaking to the people, or is the we the community that he is including here? And this is these these sections are really I think really important in talking about what is. Who is we that we're talking about? Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. I'm, we are, I, I'm, I'm curious of what other, others think about uh, your question, about how do you reconcile these two. But it is, I'm, my view is that it's always going to be a challenge to define the community. There have to be some kinds of barriers, and this list of, uh, immoral, greedy, idolater, verbally abusive, drunk, or thief, those seem to me like some boundaries that any community would create. Um, but we still want to have a we. We still want to have a um, the community that is our brothers and sisters. And so I think this tension is just um, 
part of uh, life, part of <laughs> trying to be a community, but having to have some kind of boundary. No, I really like that observation. And I think that the tension is part of it. I've long thought, suspected that God is more interested in our wrestle than our complacency. And I think that kind of tension requires us to constantly check ourselves. Yeah, I like the comment, those boundaries are ones that destroy trust. Yeah, that's a great insight. Um, all right, I'm going to, I want to make sure that we have time to get to some of the later chapters. Um, Another concern, of course, was that they were bringing lawsuits against each other in um, in public courts, and his response is, "Right, you should you should suffer you should suffer that. Right, you should take the wrong. You should suffer yourselves to be defrauded. Um, when you go to court, you do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren." Um, and going back to what Christian was saying about this idea of community, um, you know, when he, when he talks about "Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost." We talk a lot at church about our bodies as temples, and that's individual bodies. And here, and I think throughout Corinthians, Paul is really concerned with the body of Christ, right? He's using the plural you here. That, and, and I think that's kind of what he's concerned with. When you're, when you're doing this, you're violating those trusts, you're crossing those boundaries, and you're bringing weakness into the body of Christ. Um, and, and he has this reminder at least twice in these chapters, you are bought with a price. That you that you owe a debt to somebody else. Um, one of the things that Paul does quite frequently in the letters, um, we see this a lot in Corinthians, and I think this is one thing that makes Paul challenging to read. Um, besides the fact that Paul's not a big storyteller, he's much more interested in working out complicated theology. But one of the things that Paul will often do is cite a common maxim and then correct it. But it's not always clear in the text what the maxim is and what the correction is. And so we kind of have to use our judgment in that. And there, I ran across several scholarly articles where like the whole article was devoted to one of these maxims, trying to decide if that was the public, the, the popular maxim. Um, but these are a few that we do know for sure. So I notice it's the same thing several times. All things are lawful to me. And Paul corrects that and says, but not all things are beneficial. I won't be controlled by anything down at the bottom. All things may be lostful, but not all things are uplifting. So he's kind of reminding them, like, we may have the law, we may live within the law, but there are bigger things too. Um, in, in chapter six, he writes, every sin a person commits is outside his own body. Um, and I think there was this, this idea that sins are external, and Paul is reminding them, right, the immoral person sins against his own body. And so this this kind of correction, I think, is, becomes really important to some of the things that he talks about. But we see that. Um, in chapter seven, when he talks about marriage, right? The concern, here's that, here's the common maxim. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And Paul's response, of course, is that, yes, but, <laughs> um, it's good to remain unmarried, but marriage is not a sin. And I wanted to just point to, um, the kind of mutuality here. Uh, you have to remember that Roman culture was very patriarchal, um, in that, a lot of women couldn't own anything. Women were essentially seen as children, like women, children, and servants were all classed together as being under the control of the male head of house, that the paterfamilias. Um, and so what Paul goes on to say here, I think is really important. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, 
but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Um, and this would have been a really big idea, I think, in the context of Roman culture, that husbands and wives mutually owed respect and love and trust to each other. And I add something there? Yeah, uh, please. I have been uh, informed, instructed by uh, the scholar Dan McClellan, who is a Bible mm -hmm. interpreter. I don't know what the correct term for him is. But one point he makes is that Paul was under the impression that the second coming was coming really soon and that part of the reason why uh, he recommends people be not not get married or remain unmarried uh, is because Jesus is going to return too soon for that to be an issue. And that puts an interesting uh, gloss on what is he saying and how much of this is because he has this sense of imminent change, total change, uh, that it impacts an institution like marriage. Yeah. No, I like that. Thank you for adding that. Yeah. And then I think it's an important reminder, too, that for all that the Holy Ghost is speaking through Paul, that he sees himself as a conduit, he's still a very human person with very human biases and reads on the world. Um, Okay, moving on to Corinthians 8, the question was about, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? And, and just for a little bit of the cultural context, um, because they're living in the Roman Empire, it was very common for, in pagan worship to have a big banquet celebrating the gods to eat the meat that was sacrificed. Um, and, and so Paul comes back and says, food itself doesn't bring us closer to God. We are not better if we eat or better if we abstain from eating. But, and this goes back to that idea of community and um, building something that that I think of as kind of an ethic of care, which is we have the law, but we also have to think of the law in the context of our community. Um, and so he says, right, the food itself doesn't matter, but eating food that was sacrificed to idols can become a stumbling block to others, especially if they perceive you participating as maybe... Um, your beliefs are different. Uh, and in Romans, he says, if your brother or sister is offended by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Um, and I kind of love this idea that there's the rule and then there's how the rule affects other people. And we always have to be mindful of those two things. So my question here is, um, what do you think this kind of ethic of care looks like in practice in our daily lives? Like we have laws, we have rules, but we also have this um, imperative to care for others. I need to see again, while, while some comments come, I, uh, there, there, there are all the obvious things about how we as a community, I mean, Paul is all about this community, about how they keep people together, and about dealing with the squabbles among them, and and um, the idea that you would judge another 
and try to exclude them because they're, you know, in our culture, because they're drinking coffee or because they smell like they were smoking. Um, that's the most common thing. Um, but um, to also imagine that um, I might offend somebody at church or in my community by the way I breach some sort of uh, sort of community standard that I don't care about, but I know others do. And so for me to think about it from that point of view, I might, you know, we, we could talk about it on both sides, that um, I ought to be paying attention to the community standards, not because they are um, like Paul says, because they are, um, uh, because it's like the meat that is going to be inherently evil or or inherently good, but because it will offend somebody. Mm -hmm. And And, and offending somebody is a, is a something I should think about. I had a funny experience uh, a year ago or so when I went with a friend uh, to have lunch in the little cafeteria restaurant that's in the former Joseph Smith building or hotel, Utah, whatever that, that large grand office building is in salt in the middle of salt lake and i was hunting for my my favorite soft drink caffeine free diet coke and they had the only kind of coke they had was the full bore high caffeine regular coke coke and they and it it just struck me as odd that a decade ago that probably would have ruffled feathers or been somehow, well, it, it, it was uh, head-scratching for me because of all of the uh, previous assessments by people within the community of, are you transgressing by drinking Dr. Pepper or whatever? And the minutiae in which we can judge one another if we see someone doing something that is uh, not as orthodox as we might demand of other people. So to go to the restaurant in this very LDS building and not have an option but um, uh, the high caffeine Coke was made me chuckle. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I, I, like, I like the comments in the chat. There was one about prioritizing relationships with teenagers, um, seeing ourselves as part of a community, not just as individuals. And I think throughout these chapters i think that's what paul is doing he's establishing the concern he, he, he cites the concern establishes the rule but always there's that sense of being attuned to the needs of the community over uh, over individual needs um I love, I love these two comments um in the context of parenting teens i try to put my relationship above household rules a good note there and uh and I just had never thought about this. Don't bring face cards to certain families' yeah. homes. Why upset them? I just, yeah, I think it speaks for itself. Yeah. And Rosalind, I know, I know you're trying to keep no, time, but um, <laughs> it's, yeah, I, well, I was really struck by Linda's comment earlier that Paul is a convert and, you know, I myself am a convert. And sometimes in the very beginnings or often in the very beginning, the rules are baffling or mysterious and confusing. And, and it's, I think that the efforts of Paul's clarifications are um, very important in this time when it's very early in history and 
people are confused about how to navigate that. And so you're not feeling ostracized or alienated that you still are, you know, being brought in with love and understanding. Yes, exactly. That, that there's, the rules are important. He's not downplaying that, but, but there's more important things. And we're going to get to that again in chapter 13. Michael, did you have a comment? Um, I was going to say that um, when I was in college, I thought myself quite radical and, and quite brilliant. And I came to the conclusion that saying thee and thou in prayers was stupid. And why did we do that? And um, so I remember I came home from college one day and I was asked to sit at a prayer and sacrament meeting. And I made this huge point of saying you and not thee and not thou. And, you know, wilding the convention. And, and what I was doing was saying, look at how much smarter I am than all of you, you know, plebes. And, um, and my mom, when I got back to the, the seat and sat down, she said, that was stupid. <laughs> Not that was evil, but that was, why did you have to do that? And I think that we have a way of wanting conventions where what we're really doing is criticizing people and putting ourselves above them. And I think that is sinful, uh, whether or not eating the meat is sinful or saying you instead of thee is sinful, saying, you know, I'm smarter than you are and I'm better than you are and I'm not bound by these silly things that you are. That's a pride move that that is going to destroy communities. And, and you know, I, I don't do that anymore. I. I, I say what I'm going to say in my private prayers, but I observe conventions because because I don't want to lie in the face of, of people and intentionally make them feel inferior or stupid or or anger them because that's just stupid. That's yeah, that's really insightful. Thank you. And it really kind of reframes how we approach stuff if we stop looking at it in terms of if we start looking at it in terms of what does this do for the community? Um, Corinthians 9 made me laugh a little bit. The question was, should missionaries receive support from the church? And I, if you get a chance to go back and look at this, I do want you to note like all of the rhetorical questions here. Paul starts out, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Um, and one of the things that we know about rhetorical questions, they were to invite engagement, but they also serve as a really useful way of making a pointed argument without coming right out and saying it because you're requiring the audience to answer those questions. So Paul is requiring the audience to say, well, yes, you're apostle. Yes, you're free. Yes, you have all this authority. And then he says, so the question was, should missionaries receive support from the church? And he says, again, the rhetorical question, if we have sowed spiritual things among you, is it too great of a demand if we were reap material benefits? Um, right. And obviously the answer to that question is, well, no, of course not. So he's requiring them to answer the question. But then he says, we may not have, we have may not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we may not be an obstacle to the gospel of Christ. So we have a right to support from the church, but we're not asking for it. Um, anyway, there's just a little bit of uh, Paul's tone here strikes me as a little bit funny. Um, in chapter 10, he lists a bunch of things that the Israelites did that saints are not to do. Um, I don't want to talk a ton about it, but I do want to point this ethic of care showing up again, right? Let no one seek for his own good but for the good of another. All right. Um, we move into chapter 11, and I know I'm going kind of faster here. I really want to make sure we have time to talk about um, 12 and 13 and 14. So in Corinthians 11, he raises this concern about should women cover their heads in church? And um, in Raymond's 
translation of the New Testament, he um, gives a little bit of context for this, that Jewish women would have been used to covering their heads in church. Uh, Roman women probably would not have. And so there was some question about what are we supposed to do? Um, and Waymond also points out that it was common for men when they prophesied to shave their head. And so some people were also saying, well, it, women shouldn't have to shave their head. So maybe if they cover their head, it's okay. Um, and I find this interesting because, so here's what Paul says. Any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, uncovered disgraces her head, for it is the same thing as having her head shaved. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man should not cover his head because he is in the image and glory of God, and a woman is in the glory of man. For man was not made from a woman, but a woman from a man. Neither was a man created for the sake of a woman, but a woman for a man. Because of this, a woman should have the authority of a covering on her head. Um, and I have a note in the margin in my Raymond translation that just says, ugh. Um, but I went back and reread it in light of, remember, we talked about Paul's practice of refuting stuff. And look what happens if you match this response up against what he says later in the chapter. For man was not made from a woman, but woman from a man. Neither was a man created for the sake of a woman, but a woman for a man. And then Paul says, and again, because he has this habit of setting up cultural ideas and then refuting them, I think we always have to put more weight on what he says after. And so then he says, nevertheless, a woman is not without a man, nor is a man without a woman in the Lord. For just as a woman was now made from a man, a man is now born from a woman and all things are from God. It doesn't come out and say this in the text, but I think there's compelling reasons to think that what Paul was doing was setting up what people were giving as the reason why women should cover their heads and contextualizing and refuting some of it. Um, because of this, a woman should have the authority of a covering on her head. And he says, judge for yourselves. Is it appropriate for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Right? You make up your mind. And then says, again, this ethic of care. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And so for me, going back and rereading that in light of what he does very, very often, kind of transformed what he's saying here, right? Use your own judgment. Remember that men and women are equal before God, where all things are from God. Um, the second part of Corinthians 11, um, he's talking about concerns about the sacrament. Um, and what this really comes back to is, well, the idea of pagan banqueting. Um, apparently, when the saints were getting together, some of them were wanting to have these banquets. And and Paul had a couple of concerns. I mean, one, it kind of looks like the pagan banqueting, so maybe it's disrespectful of the sacrament. Um, but also there was enough disparity among the saints that not everybody had access to the same resources. Um, so again, he's bringing this back to the idea of a community, right? Um, if you eat this bread and drink this cup unworthily, you're guilty of the blood and body of God. Um, but, but he wants to return the focus to the sacrament. And if we look back in chapter 10, he says, this cup, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So again, like that he's seeing the sacrament in the context of a communal ritual that brings us together and doesn't want anything to distract us. Um, all right. Again, if people have comments or things they want to throw out there, you're welcome to. Um, I, I, I'm not going to spend a. Oh, sorry, I do, but I don't want to. I don't want to cut your list. <laughs> no, go ahead. 
I mean, several thoughts there, but the one that just I wanted to pick up was the the sacrament, um, the um, unworthily, the unworthy. Um, sometimes we read that as a as a as a checklist of of what you've done right and wrong. I read it, and I understand Paul here in all of the what, what we've just been talking about as um, as a communal concept. Uh, do you belong in this community? Because the whole idea is to be taking the sacrament as part of a community. And so the, the worthiness is tied back to his, his comments earlier about who should be excluded and who should be included. And the, and the, and the test is really, do you belong in this community? Right. And, and that you are asked to examine yourself. Yeah. And that's a perfect setup um, for 12. And again, so I think, I mean, I think Paul is being very intentional in the way he's he's setting up these chapters. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about spiritual gifts because I feel like that's something that we talk about in pretty much every Sunday school lesson on these topics. But I wanted to come back to the body of Christ. I think this might be one of my very favorite passages of scripture. Um, Michael, could I get you to read this one? Leave. Whereas the body is one, hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have uh, been made, all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Me to go on? Yes, please. All the way through. Okay. Uh, and the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comings. For our comely parts have no need, but God has tempered the body together having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Thank you. And I think here we see sort of that clearest articulation of the the communal ethic of care. Um, and I just I just love so much how he sets this up. You know, I, I think all of us have had moments where we feel like those uncomely parts. And I love that Paul singles that out. If you feel like you don't have value in this body, you do, that we need all of those parts of the body. Um, and something that I personally worry about sometimes is that we are making, that sometimes we make parts of the body that should be essential, that could add to our richness, that we make them feel unwelcome, right? Because if one member suffers, all the members suffer for it. Um, pro probably a lot of you are familiar with Patrick Mason's book, Restoration. Um, but in it, he talks about how this this idea of gathering um, and that there's a way you can read gathering as bringing in people on the margins, that that's what Christ did during his ministry. And that's what we are called to do because the restoration of all things is designed with one grand aim in mind, 
restoring God's people, our father and mother's children, to their eternal family, to wholeness. And I think this wholeness, again, refers to that body, that if one part of the body is sick or suffering, the whole body suffers. Um, and I, I don't have much more to say on that, but I'm, I would love to have other thoughts. Um, if anybody has something they want to share about um, this importance of the body of Christ. I'd just like to underline it. But I think um, I think it's a real discussion. I think it's a, I mean, I like Patrick's approach, but I think the question of who is included in the community is, is a very real discussion in 2023. And are we going to have tight boundaries or are we going to extend to the marginalized? And I, I don't think that's, I mean, I, while I'm on Patrick's side, I, I don't think that's a foregone conclusion in our current community of conversation. Yeah. But I do, I mean, I, I just appreciate Paul's continual focus on, it's not just about you and how you follow rules, but it's about you and how you fit in with the community. Um, and, and that's a tension that, as an introvert, I have to grapple with all the time. Um, yes, Lisa, I love that. I also have um, queer family members that I love dearly. And I think that there needs to be a space for everyone. Um, that's, that's, that would be my ideal world. Um, that even those, even the parts that we don't yet see their role have a role, that all parts serve the body of Christ. And I think it's also worth just remembering that when Paul was writing these things, this was also who belongs in the community was also uh, a tremendously important question in the church. And it was not at all uh, settled whether or not uh, people who were not Jewish could participate in the church on the same terms as people who were. Uh, this was probably written before the council in Jerusalem. You know, before it was decided that people didn't have to uh, undergo circumcision if they were converted. Um, so the, the question of who belongs in the community is part of that ongoing uh, continual restoration that Patrick talks about. Um, it, it, in the, uh, in the, the former day saints, it was, it was constantly in flux, and even the apostles didn't agree or get it right at first. So, so the idea that that the boundaries of the community are subject to continuing revelation, I think, is is something we take very clearly from the writings of Paul in the New Testament. And Joe raises a really interesting question: Is a community without boundaries, in fact, a community? And I, I think that's part of what Paul is wrestling with. I think that's part of what we have to wrestle with. We are called to care for one another in our communities. Um, and, and we probably have multiple and interlocking communities. We have a, the community of the church. We have a broader community that we live in. And I don't think we have time to discuss that. I think we could spend the rest of the time just talking about that. Um, but I do think it's an important question to grapple with and to wrestle with, because I don't think there's an easy answer. Um, and then, of course, at, at kind of the peak of all of this, you know, Paul has gone through 
all the contentions that the people need to move through. Um, he's gone through all of these spiritual gifts that become that 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 are part of the inheritance of belonging to the church. Um, and then he talks about love. Um, Helen, would you mind reading this? Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Thank you. I've always loved this passage, even when I was a kid and didn't really understand, but through a glass darkly. But there's something so intimate about then shall I know even as I am known, right? The, and, and Paul's coming back to that idea of wisdom, right? That there is this worldly wisdom we can we can try and achieve, but there's a greater wisdom. There's this perfection, this maturity that comes from the gospel, from opening our lives to the spirit. Um, but I also think it's significant that he talks about love at the end of all of these spiritual gifts. So why? Why is love so important? How does it contribute to healing the body of Christ? Also, I know this is running long. If people have to go, that is fine. I still have some great material that I'm hoping we can talk about. Well, I think love adds into the whole or reinforces the whole notion of inclusion that we are all God's children. And, and you know, I was thinking about the previous um, slide where you asked for input. And I think one of the hardest things you wrestle with is, is you know, we offer love and, and acceptance and everything, but, you know, we always have to take into account that people have their own agency and they can choose to either accept or reject that love and um, and the teachings of Christ. So I think though that you just have to maintain an open heart regardless of everything. And that's that's part of the charity. I like that idea, especially if we put, we've been talking about, you know, having an open mind, being open to the spirit, but I love that, that you also have to have an open heart. I have I I have liked the idea that um, love and we sometimes we spend a lot of time talking about what does what does love here our charity mean I'm I'm sorry I'm mixing words um, though the uh, I'll, I'll cite Marcus Borch who talked about the central ethic of. Jesus of, of Christ's teaching is compassion, which is a uh, which is an understanding. It's an it's a it's a it's actually a socio political kind of concept of 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 inclusion, of understanding, of um, of uh, of stepping in the shoes of the other. Um, and if that's if that's Christ's central ethic, um, I think that's what 
Paul's talking about here. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so again, we probably, sorry, Rebecca, go ahead. Uh, and then I'm glad uh, just one last also, big point. I want you know, to thinking about, you know, all of these concerns that Paul is trying to help the church, this early Christian community deal with, you know, all, it's like he's showing, you know, introducing this ethic of care. Remember, I mean, it's like, I feel like he's trying to just get them to hold on to, you know, the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor. Um, and then it all comes, you know, all of these concerns, it's all about um, this community and are you loving your neighbor and and how entwined that is with um, with our relationship with God. Um, and just, just this notion of like all of these kind of rules that you set for yourself, like whatever you're doing or you're concerned about, like if you don't have love, you are nothing, right? That's the whole, the whole aim. Let's get back to what this um, message of the Savior, you know, really was. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about this because it's a little bit of a thorny issue that comes up in these chapters. Um, and I think given everything else that we've talked about with Paul, how um, you know, this this concern and care for other people, um, his emphasis on prophecy. Um, so in chapter 14, here are some of the things he says. Pursue charity, seek for spiritual gifts, especially so that you may prophesy. Um, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Again, encouraging them to look for all of these gifts to build the, the church, to build the body of Christ. Um Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking, but be infants in wickedness and mature in your thinking. And then, as in all the churches of the saints, let the women remain silent in the churches. There's kind of like a jarringly jarring tonal shift here. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, they should inquire of their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Um, and now a lot of this I'm getting from Beth Allison's bar, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. A lot of you are probably familiar with this. Um, it's a really um, fantastic book where she suggests that, you know, we, sometimes we blame Christianity for the secondary position of women in our current cultural context. And she makes a pretty compelling case that that was actually not Christianity. That was external culture and Christianity borrowed those ideas where maybe they shouldn't have. Um, so she talks about the Opian Law, which was um, after a series of repeated wars, the Romans were running out of money. And so they passed this law regulating that a woman couldn't own more than like half an ounce of gold. Um, she couldn't wear rich clothes in public. She couldn't um, ride in carriages. There were all kinds of things that, that governed what women could and couldn't do. And it was for the purpose of raising money for the army. Um, but when the wars ended, they kept these laws. And so women went into the streets to protest and a lot of people didn't like it. So Cato says, what kind of behavior is this? Running around in public, blocking the streets, speaking to other women's husbands? Could you not have asked your own husbands the same thing at home? Does that sound familiar? As soon as they begin to be your equals, they will have become your superiors. Okay, so let's look at that again. Women are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, just as the law says. If they desire to learn anything, they should inquire of their husbands at home. Do you hear that echo of Cato in this? So I think, and, and Barr makes a pretty compelling case that this is another one of those Pauline refutations where he's introducing what culture says 
and then correcting it how a Christian should respond. So he said, and this this comes from the RSV version, the Revised Standard Version. Um, what? Did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, brothers and sisters, seek to prophesy and do not prohibit anyone from speaking in tongues. And I have to admit, when I first read this in Barr's book, it kind of blew my mind because I've always thought of Paul as like, oh, he's the one that says women shouldn't speak in church and whatever other wonderful things he said, I had a hard time forgiving Paul for saying that. But I don't think we have to read Paul that way. I think there's lots of evidence that that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying everyone should seek for spiritual gifts. They come from God. If God gives you the gift of prophecy, you should prophesy. Um, all right. I don't know that there's much more to, to say on that other than just that's a sticky issue that comes up in these chapters. Um, now, wait a minute, not to, not to let Paul off the hook completely here. No, I mean, he's still a product of his time. If he's, if he's speaking in his time, there is a, there is a radical, rebellious, let's take on the times approach. And there is a, um, let's go ahead, get along, let's work within our culture, let's not make waves. And isn't it pretty clear that Paul's taking the latter? That, and I, and... Oh yeah, I could really disagree with, you know, some I, you know, I'd like a preacher saying let's make waves, but I, I mean, Paul has chosen a side here in that in that conversation. Yeah, and 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 I do think that's right. I I think he's not saying like go out and defy the law, but I do think he's trying to challenge Christians to recognize that being a follower of God, being a member of this community, committing to love is committing to live and think differently in some important ways than the society around you. Um, and then, of course, the last thing that he talks about is his testimony. At the very beginning, he says, we preach Christ crucified, and then he comes back to that again at the end. Um, he, rec he recites all of the people who are witnesses to the risen Christ, including people who are still alive. Um, and then, because I'm a rhetorical scholar, I couldn't help noticing the enthymemes um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the enthymemes, they're just, uh, they're a form of a syllogism that leaves out one of the premises and that you often can find it with an if then. So i just wanted to run through these. If there be no resurrection, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our message is in vain. If our message is vain and you believe us, then your faith is empty. If your faith is empty, then you still live in your sins, right? And if Christ died, then only those who died in Christ have also perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. Right? That's a, that's a big deal. Look at how much is resting here on this testimony of Christ crucified. But Christ is risen, and because of this, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Um, and the last and his last admonitions are just some um, I don't know what you would call that uh, housekeeping items. We're collecting money for the saints. Please donate. Um, and I, I think that a great way to end is with part of Paul's closing message. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Let everything you do be done in love. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. 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 Thank you, Russell. Our dear God, 
We thank thee for this time together. We're grateful for the words of Paul and for the conversation we have had together through Rosalind's great gifts. We pray that thou will bless her in the responsibility she has to juggle. We ask for thy blessing as we continue through the Sabbath day to carry the joy and reverence of the music and to bind our hearts in love for one another. And we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greetings. My name is Rebecca Deschweinitz, and I'm thrilled to serve as a board member at the Dialogue Foundation and as one of the hosts of Dialogue Gospel Study. In each episode, which we record live the second and fourth Sunday of every month, we welcome esteemed speakers from a variety of backgrounds to share their insights and perspectives on the Come Follow Me lessons. Our aim is to spark meaningful conversations about the scriptures, to connect them to our personal experiences and to our understandings and explorations of the gospel. To stay in the loop with our upcoming lessons and this opportunity to engage with Mormon thought, culture, and belief, be sure to visit dialoguejournal.com and sign up for our newsletter. By doing so, you'll receive updates and timely links to join our live stream lessons. Additionally, you can catch up on our past guests and episodes by subscribing to Dialogue Journal on YouTube, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dialogue Podcast Network.